Hi, my name's Erin. I'm a nurse, a teacher, um, a mom, a pet owner, you know, just an average person. My research when I went through my master's program uh, was in end of life, and end of, more specifically, end of life education. And people ask me, you know, how, how did you get in to end of life education? Because that's not something, you know, people really look for. That's not something people want to research. And how it was, was that I had been a nurse for about three months. Uh, I worked on an oncology floor, uh, a specialty unit where we did bone marrow transplants. And I was helping, I mean, I was still on orientation, thank God, but I was helping with um, a new patient who uh, was a young 21-year-old young lady who had come home from, for Christmas not feeling real well. And she'd gone to the doctor's office and got diagnosed with leukemia, which huge blow, huge hard hit, um, you know, not something you ever want to hear for anyone and a 21-year-old who's just getting on the prime of her life and growing and everything. So they did a, um, a match for looking for bone marrow and they found a match right away and it was a really good match. And so the family was just counting their blessings. They thought it was a miracle, you know, I mean, just all the celebratory things for getting a match. And so it was probably, you know, later in April or um, area when March, April, when we, we went to give her the, the donor um, blood cells, the donor uh, white cells. And, and I just remember how quick everything went awry. Um, blood pressure started dropping. Uh, she got pale. She couldn't manage her airway anymore. Her saturations were dropping. Everything was failing. And you look in the bed and there's a 21 year old in this bed. And so me being a, a new graduate and you know more in the way than help, I sat with the mom and we sat in the hallway and we watched as they brought in more blood and they transfused more blood. And we watched as the more doctors and more people came in and x-ray came in and lab came in and, um, and they would leave. And, you know, we, we sat on the hallway floor. And by this time, it's probably two or three in the morning. And I remember when the doctor came out and he said, he knelt down in front of this mom and said, this is futile. We can't save her. And he got up and walked away. And that was my first end of life experience. That was my first time sitting with a mom, not sure what to do, not sure what to say. And I realized the impact that was having on me, let alone her as she was losing her daughter. But what had happened was she, her daughter had had an acute reaction to the, um, to the transplant and the, um, and the immune system that we basically put in her daughter's body looked around and said, this isn't mine. And it attacked everything and it ate holes through the intestines and ate holes through the liver and just attacked everything. And so she was bleeding out internally. And, and there was, you can't, you can't patch those holes. You can't give surgery to stop the bleeding. 
But what I realized as I went through nursing and as I got older and as I worked now in education was how much education I didn't receive to prepare me for that moment. I remember in nursing school, I got about one hour of end of life education. And that one hour was about organ, re, um, organ transplant and organ um, harvesting. Or, um, so it wasn't even how to work with this mom. It wasn't how to handle my own emotions. It wasn't how I was gonna sit in my car that morning when I left and just sob uncontrollably because I just watched a 21 year old die knowing there was nothing medically we could do to save her. And that's why end-of-life education has become such a passion for me because while I live with that trauma, and I've been a nurse for over a decade at this point in time, there were nurses, when I asked questions uh, and did research, there were nurses who had been nurses for 30-plus years that still remembered every detail of the patient that died in front of them. And educators let that happen. You know, to some degree, we have to accept responsibility for that as educators. We allowed that to happen because we did not prepare students to be nurses that were going to be dealing with death. We're told that there's so much other content that we have to plug in to every minute. There's so much, you know, fluid and electrolytes, lab values, um, care management, care plans, research, evidence-based practice. There's so much stuff, you know, OB, postpartum, um, mental health, dietitians, dietary, you know, I mean, just so much stuff to plug in those few hours that we get with them. But guess what? Every single one of us is going to have an end-of-life experience. And if we don't start teaching more end-of-life education, we are failing the next generation of nurses and of healthcare providers that's coming up. And don't take this blame on all of our, ourselves, but we have to recognize and accept accountability for that part that we do play um, and, and how we are not advocating for the change that needs to happen. So in this podcast, the things I want to cover are the barriers to end-of-life education, which I've talked about a few, but we're going to go a little more de in-depth to that. We're going to talk about why it's important to have that education. And then let's talk about how. How do we actually teach some of these students how to go in to these rooms of people that are dying? How do we teach them to have the courage to walk towards the discomfort instead of away from it? So I hope you stay with me for this and we go through some of the education that needs to happen and maybe you'll gain some tools um, of how to teach your students or maybe how to teach your nurses on the floor. Uh, this could be geared really towards any healthcare professionals, but I, as I am a nurse and I am a nurse educator, it, it's nurse heavy and I apologize for that. But please feel free to take out the word nurse and put in paramedic or put in pharmacist or radiology tech or whatever would work for you. Um, I just use the word nurse because that's my experience. But really, anyone in healthcare, this education is incredibly appropriate for. All 
right, let's talk about some of the barriers that go with end-of-life education. And this gets really hard and complicated because not only are there barriers in the medical world, there are barriers in our societal and culture world. Um, if you think that Facebook is not editing what people see in the posts, you are sorely mistaken. I often show a video that was taken off of Facebook because it was deemed too graphic. And it was of an anencephalic baby. And it was this beautiful video um, that, that the family had created in remembrance of this child that they had lost. And it was just heartbreaking that Facebook would take that off. But Facebook doesn't want you to see that stuff. Facebook gets uh, rewarded by likes. It gets rewarded by positive things. So things that are going to get spread and passed on and get more feedback. So they don't want the sad stuff. So our culture hides from death. And when we're talking about the cultural aspects, the best compliment you can give a mortician is that the person in the casket looks like they're sleeping. To me, that's like a WTF, like they're dead. They should not look like they're sleeping. No wonder we have kids that are confused and scared to go to bed at night because they see somebody, if they get to go to the funeral, and see that person and see that they look like they're sleeping and have a really hard time making that connection. Death doesn't happen in the home anymore. So we don't see death in the home. We don't see people dying, you know, grandma dying in the, in the couch, on the couch or that kind of stuff. I mean, the term wake, when we used to have a wake, the reason it lasted three days was to see if they would wake up. And they were usually laid out on the couch so that we could see if they woke up. I mean, that's just how death worked back when my grandma was a little kid. But now, I mean, people go to facilities to die or they even now the facilities don't want them and so they go to the um to acute care so back to the hospital it's almost like the way we have rewritten and programmed for uh, who takes responsibility for the death it's like we're playing hot potato with people and being like okay who are they gonna die on and who's gonna have to count that number in their in their numbers and record that for the government. So huge barriers when it comes to cultural, government, people in suits making decisions for people in scrubs, oftentimes doesn't work because they don't understand the complexities of medicine, of healthcare, and of just the dying and, and medical process. I mean, we've got people that can't take acetaminophen or Tylenol correctly, and we think that they can make governmental choices for um, us in, in a healthcare regime. It's, it's just totally absurd. So then we look at, so we've got a societal issue that causes a barrier. We've got a governmental issue that causes a barrier because they see death as a failure, and they judge us by that if we have death. My question would then be, if we stopped making death a failure and stopped making death an enemy and made pain and suffering an enemy, how would that change our health care? But that's a podcast for a different time. Continuing to talk about some of the barriers, let's talk about the doctors themselves. Holy cow! 
Some of these doctors are awful at having end-of-life conversations. I have gotten to be a part of really bad end-of-life conversations with doctors, and I've gotten a chance to be parts of really good end-of-life conversations with doctors. And it's a struggle. I had a doctor just recently that told a family that their loved one was going to die. He had dysphagia after a massive, massive stroke, and he was going to die, and it was on a bell curve, and it was going to be in 159 days, and he might die on this side of the bell curve, or he might die on this side of the bell curve mind you the whole time staring at the family's feet the family was anxious the gentleman uh, doctor had an accent so he was a little harder to understand so they really needed to be able to read his lips even more so but his security and assuredness in himself with that ability to have that conversation was very lacking and mind you I wanted to um like stop the whole thing and be like, hey, we really need to talk about how to have this conversation first before going in. But, you know, as a nurse, there are limits to what I can do to um, adjust and address. It's not doctor's fault completely. They haven't been taught either. So not only have they been told that death is a failure, both by the government who does like recording and pays attention to those things, but also in school. And to some degrees, death probably has to be a failure for them. I mean, they're going to put cut on you and put your, their hands in you. They have to kind of be able to think of you a little differently than the mother of the child or whatever. You know, they, they have to be able to kind of disassociate a bit. So it's not totally their fault. But in school, educators aren't teaching them on end of life and how to be respectful and how to have those conversations either. I looked at some really old research. It was in the 1990s, right? So that is so old by today's standards, like pretty much if it's not from this year or last minute, it's considered old. But it was from the 90s, and it looked at 126 medical schools, and out of the 126 medical schools, five. Five required end-of-life education, required a course on end-of-life education. Well, I'm like, that That can't be true. That can't be true to today, right? Because, I mean, we are so much more advanced. We've got to see the errors in our ways. We've, we've got to be better. Well, so then this is what I do when I get bored on a summer night is I ask the question and I start looking. So I looked, I Googled um, top medical schools in the United States, and I came up with the top three. And then... Thank goodness for the internet. I dug into everything I could find about those medical programs. I dug into their timelines and calendars, and I dug into the descriptions of the courses if I could find them, or the syllabi if I could find them. And of the three schools that I looked at, one had a two-hour credit elective course on spirituality and healing. There was no palliative or hospice requirement or elective that had hospice or palliative, but I figured at least spirituality and healing, you're gonna touch on some of it. They did have an elective on lupus and about everything else, but not death. Another school had a four day required workshop on end of life and palliative care. So you have an entire medical program of how long do they last, four days. They got four days of end of life education, but it was required for everyone. So then the third school I looked at had a four-week required course. Um, They called it an intensive. um, And it covered, so in four weeks, mind you, they covered dermatology, ophthalmology, advanced clinical reasoning, advanced presentation skills, 
bedside skills, ethics, palliative medicine, advanced sexual history, electronic medical record, um, EKG or ECG interpretation, intravenous and fluid electrolyte management. I think I stumbled up a bit on those words, but you get the idea. That's three of the top medical schools in the United States, and you have one of them that has a four-day required course or workshop, and one that put palliative medicine in with advanced sexual history, electronic medical record, and dermatology and ophthalmology. I'm pretty sure end of life was not given a bunch of time that it really needed in there. So that's a huge barrier. How can we expect doctors to be better at having end of life conversations if they are not being taught how to have them? If they are not being taught that death is not a failure, but a part of their practice and something that they can get better at. If you think nursing school is better, you're sorely mistaken. Um, I, this is where my research starts coming in. And I looked at, uh, I asked nurses um, how many hours they got of end of life education. So I've already talked about that I got one. One hour of end of life education in my nursing program that I can remember. Um, my survey, I actually had to shut it down because I got so many responses in the first 24 hours that it was just very overwhelming and a ton of data. But it also showed that it's a really hot topic for nurses, and nurses get very passionate about this. So when I looked at it, 24% of my nurses, so 24 of, a, of 350, said they had zero hours. So a quarter of nurses never even got end-of-life education in their program. Now, they may have gotten some and may not remember it, but is it valuable education if it's not remembered? So then the another group of them, 55% got between one to five hours of end-of-life education. So you're talking maybe one clinical day, if that, maybe a lecture here or there. I mean, just a very minimal amount, and that's 55%. So you're now looking at over three-quarters of your nursing students, new nurses, have had very little end-of-life education. 6%, however, did report that they were given a course dedicated to end of life. If that came out about OB, that only 6% had been given an OB dedicated course or a mental health dedicated course or a med surge dedicated course, we would be screaming at the top of our lungs about how inappropriate that is. But yet, guess what, guys? Not everyone's going to deliver a baby. Not everyone's going to deal. Well, psych, everyone's going to deal with. Let's just be honest. Psych is everywhere. But you know what I mean? Like, not everyone is going to be a pediatric nurse, but yet we require a course on pediatric nursing care. We require a course on OB. And I'm not saying that we need to limit the hours of OB or take out pediatric care because they are very important and have unique aspects to them. I'm just saying that when we're looking at how many nurses are going to have end-of-life experiences, we need to prioritize that education and get it in there so that those nurses are prepared um, to deal with the issues and the consequences that are going to come from it. So we've talked about the barriers that the doctors have. Uh, we've talked about the barriers of the doctors being barriers. <laughs> but we've also talked about that education really is a barrier to end-of-life um, it, learning and we just haven't plugged it in we haven't advocated for it and we haven't pushed for it so that's something that is a huge barrier and another barrier honestly is cultural and society we live in a culture and a society that hides from death 
uh, routinely. We don't take our children to funerals. We don't talk about end of life. We, you know, most of us, because our parents ha live longer, thank goodness, we don't experience as much death. We have frequently, we have nurses who are young and in their early 20s who have, you know, their grandparents, their aunts and uncles, mom and dad, and, and very little death experience. So that makes them very naked, very vulnerable at the bedside when it comes to end of life. The next section we really need to talk about is understanding ourselves when it comes to death. So I hope you keep going with me. Um, I know this is a hard topic and I know this is getting long. So keep coming with me though. It's really important. you're still with me so that's awesome that means you're ready to go into some some of the muddiness now that comes with death and some of the muddiness that comes with death is the emotions the squishy gooey messy stuff that we have to deal with because we have to go beyond that Facebook superficial life when it comes to emotions when it comes to reactions when it comes to responses we have to understand something very primitive first. We have to understand that we feel before we think. And if we feel before we think, that is going to change how we interpret information, how we respond to or react to an event. So we react with feelings. We respond by thinking. This is a really simple way of putting emotional intelligence. And I know emotional intelligence is not an educational theory, it's actually a management theory. And I really like it for getting into the muddiness of emotions because it gives us a place to start. There are four pillars when it comes to emotional intelligence. It comes self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, and relationship management. And if we use all four of these things, we can manage anything going on on the floor, any death, any event, anything that's going on, we can manage it so much better. So I try and look at this as we are the managers of a patient care or a patient room. So this really pulls into that. I really like emotional intelligence for getting into this stuff because it gives us some structure. When we talk about self-awareness, when we're talking, especially when we're talking about death, again, there are lots of different ways we can get in touch with self-awareness. Um, I really like a activity where you rip up strips of paper. You'd be really surprised at how attached or how aware people are as in a silent room you read a story where they have to rip up every part of their life until it comes down to that last piece of paper. I had a student one time that came up to me as we were doing it or after we had done it and it just an you know, kind of a cocky guy, um, you know, I mean, he's the only guy in the nursing program. So, you know, kind of one of those guys and he, um, real self-assured and came up to me and he handed me a slip of paper and it said mom on it. And he goes, I couldn't rip up my mom, you know? And so knowing that even with that arrogance, even with that exterior that he had, we had, we had struck a chord with emotion and with self-awareness and we had dug down a little bit deeper into his psyche 
hopefully preparing him for the end of life experience that he's gonna go into as a nurse. Um, so that's really important, that self-awareness. So things that we need to pay attention to with self-awareness is um, know your triggers. If you're a person that gets triggered by um, pediatric death, well, maybe then you're not taking the kiddos that are dying. Maybe your triggers are families that are elusive and don't come, you know, maybe your triggers are the patient that wants to be a full code that everyone knows is dying, but the patient still wants to be a full code. Knowing your triggers, one allows you to control them better, but it also allows you to be able to say, you know what, that patient might be better off with someone else because they're not gonna do really well with me because I'm gonna get frustrated with them and they're gonna get frustrated with me. That can't happen all the time. I mean, there is a nursing or healthcare shortage, so sometimes we can't pick our patients, but sometimes we can. And having that self-awareness of your triggers can help you decide that patient's probably just not good for me. Visit your values. Looking at what values you have for um, yourself is really important because if you value different things, when someone's in their end of life moments, your values don't really matter, but you'd be surprised how much they kind of weave in there. If you are a hugely religious person and you're working with a family that's not religious at all, that's going to be a big struggle. And that may be really hard for you. Or if you're a complete atheist and they, have, they are Catholic and want a priest and want all that, it, it might be a bit of a challenge for you. You may not be as supportive as you could be. So knowing your values, um, what you have. I know with me, I have to be really careful because my values of end of life are, I do not want a trach, a peg. I do not want to go to long-term care on a ventilator. And so, but my sister is completely the opposite. She wants everything done. So we have to visit our values and our own choices before we can go in and take care of each other. Now I've told her that I will advocate for her because that's her choice, not mine. And so understanding that piece, but it's really important to understand where your values are and take some time to really dig into them and understand how they might be different and how they might impact other people. Something else with self-awareness is get to know yourself under stress. This is a really key event because there is going to be stress. No matter where you work, you're going to have stress. But really in healthcare, there's just a ton and there's a ton of unexpected stress, like just exhausting. And you gotta know yourself. Are you somebody that gets short and snappy? Are you somebody that like, I need to step away and take a breath or like, I know myself under stress, I don't eat. And then my blood sugar starts dropping and I get really snarky. So it's really important for me, like when I'm under stress to be like, okay, have I eaten anything? Cause that will help me. Um, be better for my patients and my coworkers. So self-awareness is that getting to know yourself because if you know yourself, you can manage yourself. If you do not get to know yourself, there's nothing to manage. There's no growth opportunity either. If you don't have self-awareness of, ooh, I sounded really snarky and sharp right there, maybe should I should apologize so that we can have a better working relationship there's gonna be none of that. There'll be no opportunity for growth because you're not aware that you did anything wrong, right? Or even that your, your tone may have been taken wrong. Self-management. So we've talked about that self-awareness. Now you can manage it, right? So we talked about the triggers. Well, how do you manage those triggers better? So, okay, if I work somewhere where I know I'm gonna get a bunch of triggers, 
and I don't have sleep and I haven't done something to recharge myself, I'm going to be, it's going to be harder for me to control my triggers, right? Or to understand my values and keep my values under check. So it's really important when we're doing self-management that we take care of ourselves. So like I talked about eating, I have a hard time being self-aware and managing myself if I don't eat. My sugar drops, I get cranky and I don't respond as well as I would like. Other things we can do for self-management is take that breath. And we're not just talking like one breath. We're talking, if you can do a full minute, awesome. If you can't do a full minute, a good 10 second, open those lungs, get those lungs fully full. And that way, when you blow out, you get all that tension released. Our lungs have a ton of nerve endings in them. They have a ton of receptors in there. They can help bring down a lot of anxiety just because they help rebalance that control of our blood flow. Again, that's going back to that fight or flight mode, right? That anxiety that builds up big breaths, help open it, get those things dilated and get things kind of resettled. Count to 10 is another one, but it can't, sometimes you might start off with like 10, 9, 8, you know, gritted teeth, tense. That's, that's okay. You know, that can help you start. Maybe you need to go in the bathroom and just take a break. I know I have kids. Sometimes I need to go into the bathroom just to count to 10, to take a breath, to manage myself, because otherwise snarky Aaron is going to come out and be really mad that the dishes were left in the sink, right? So emotional intelligence uh, is not just for medical management. It's managing a house as well as your life. One really important thing, smile and laugh more. We need more laughter. We need more happy thoughts. Negativity is so hard to get out of. And so remembering that we need to dig down into that uh, positive moments um, so that we can try and pull ourselves up more too. And it's super easy to get into negativity. So just remember to smile or laugh more. Remember the good moments. Don't sit and ruminate on all the negative things that have happened. If you need to, to vent, vent for five minutes, get it off your chest, but then spend an equal amount of time, five minutes, thinking about what were my good things today? What were good things that happened? What were good things about that family? What were good things about that patient? Was that, you know, refocus. Not everything we do is bad. We do good things, and but we are really hard on ourselves when we pick apart all the negativity. So once you have the the self-awareness and the self-management, then we can go into social awareness. And social awareness is really important, especially in end-of-life situations, because it'll really help you, one, stay safe and manage that room. Staying safe is really important. When it comes to end-of-life, there's a lot of emotions. Remember, these people are going emotions first, thinking second. So they're in that high emotional state. And so we have to get them pulled back down into the thinking area, and that can be really challenging. We wanna watch body language. When we're watching body language, we're watching for that tense. We're watching for, um, are they exhausted and not able to listen? Being socially aware of who in that room is having what kind of body language. Do you have the uncle from Texas who's just now seen his mom and he hasn't seen her for 10 years and so all of a sudden he's seen her decline totally whereas the other participant in it, the, the daughter or whatever, has been watching mom decline for for years and has seen it. And so she's very aware of what's going on. Being aware of where everybody is in their um, end of life scenarios and their ideas of mortality and understanding it can really help you under um, control that room and be just aware of how they are. 
other things that are good for social awareness is practice the art of listening. Commit to sit. If you're gonna go in a room and talk to someone, commit to sit. Research shows that if you sit, even if it's the same amount of time that you would have stood, they perceive it as longer because you committed to sit down. I know we don't always have time to do that. So maybe you have to tell them, hey, you just told me something really heavy and I wanna give you the time for that. I need to go get this patient discharged. I'm gonna go get him discharged and then I'll be back and we'll sit down and we'll talk about that because that was a really, you know, a big statement or a big thought. So practice the art of listening. Make sure you have time for it when you go in there. Don't try and rush any end-of-life conversations because you are just going to come off as kind of an ass. So make sure that you have the time to do it. Um, step in their shoes. You know, think how they're feeling. Think how they're um, going through their processes. Uh, that can be really hard. Um, when we see a 93-year-old that's been on the ventilator and we're like, are you kidding me? Why is he on the ventilator? They're, he's not going to survive. He's, everything's failing but understanding that the daughter sitting right next to him just wants her dad to, her her dad to live. And so understanding where they are in that process, step in their shoes. Um, and sometimes that takes some strength and energy for you to do that. Catch the mood of the room. That gets really important when you do have all those different um, parties and participants in it, making sure you're just like, hey, okay, someone came from Texas and he has no clue what's going on. This person knows everything that's going on. And then you have a smattering of people in the middle. So catching the mood of the room. Other thing that's really um, good about social awareness is having what they call a back pocket question. So it's a really open-ended question. The one that I like the best when it comes to end of life stuff is what do you know? And it works great for lots of different scenarios, but what do you know about? What do you know about heart attacks? What do you know about ventilators? What do you know about someone being coded? And then you can go into the facts. If you can go into the facts in that pathophysiology, you can bring people up to where you are and you can also figure out where people are by asking that question. What do you know about uh, heart attacks? Well, I don't know anything about heart attacks other than what I see on TV. Okay, well, we got to start from way back here. Versus if you ask someone, what do you know about heart attacks? And they're like, oh, I know that they've had three heart attacks that, you know, we've been kind of waiting knowing a big one's coming because they didn't want to take anticoagulants. Okay, that person is going to be a very different level of education than the other person that's like, yeah, it's whatever, I was on Grey's Anatomy, right? So paying attention to those back pocket questions, just having that question that can also buy you some time if you're trying to settle things down in the room. That can give you some time. Some, the, next, the last piece of it is relationship management. And this gets really tough depending on your situation and what's going on. But big things for this one are build trust. Uh, the other things that you're gonna be able to do, that social awareness, self-awareness, social, you know, all of that's gonna help you build trust, that commit to sit, um, actions speak louder than words, so make your actions matter. If you say you're going to be back in 10 minutes, be back in 10 minutes. That's going to build trust. If you're not back in 10 minutes and you're not back for an hour, come back and, and apologize. Say, hey, I'm so sorry I meant to be here in 10 minutes. Um, I just had some things happen. Now I can sit with you and have a conversation. Or if you're not going to be back in 10 minutes, don't give them that 10-minute timeline because it's going to be a challenge. Don't avoid the inevitable. If they need to have an end of life conversation, do not avoid it. Patients will open 
the door for you. They will open the door. They will crack it open just a little bit by asking you a question like, well, do you believe in God? Or, or do you fear dying? Any of those little questions, they're gonna open that door a little bit. And if you blow it off or walk away or don't hear it or don't pay attention, they're never gonna open that door again for you. So my challenge for everyone is to always be courageous enough to walk through the door. When they open that door for you, please, please, please walk through it. Don't ignore what's going on because that patient, they need you to understand. They need someone to be an advocate for them. They need someone to be there. So don't avoid those inevitable conversations that are gonna happen. And I promise you, they happen at the most random odd times. Several times I worked a lot of night shift and it always seemed to happen at like two or three in the morning, you know, kind of had the quiet time. All the doctors were gone, all the lab tests were done, everything, all the hustle and bustle was done. But now the quietness of the night and all the thoughts sinking in and those conversations seem to always happen a lot in the middle of the night when everybody's gone, stuff is quiet, those quiet moments when the thoughts can really process. So just don't avoid the inevitable. They need to know that someone is there and willing to have those conversations with them. Acknowledge others' feelings. So again, if you tell someone you're gonna be there in 10 minutes and you're not, acknowledge that you just, you made them feel like they weren't the priority. And so you need to acknowledge, you know, hey, I'm sorry I wasn't here in 10 minutes. I had something happen, but I can be here now for you if you're willing to have this conversation or whatever. So acknowledging the feelings that people have or tell people like, hey, this is what I'm, this is what I see, this is how I'm interpreting it. This is what I heard you say. I heard you say that you're really angry right now. You know, acknowledging those feelings. Showing caring. Now this seems really simple, but sometimes it's really hard when we are busy and in the hustle and bustle of the day. When you have two ICU patients or five med surge patients or, you know, four observation patients or whatever you've got and you're trying to get all these patients done, showing caring can be hard. Touch, kindness, smiles, empathy, compassion, all of these show caring. So make sure that you're giving some time to show caring, not only for them, but back into that self-management for yourself as well. And then another really big one for relationship management is explain decisions. Don't just do stuff to people because you think you know, like you're so... Um, after a while, you get so used to doing a process. So make sure that you're explaining decisions to people. Why are you starting the IV in that left arm? Why are you um, giving them their tube feed med bolus now? Why are you doing, why are you bringing in their meal tray? Why are you checking their blood sugar? You know, understand that they have very little control, especially when they're in the hospital, but in the dying process as well. Like there's just not a lot of control. The body's gonna do what it's gonna do. The disease is gonna take its toll. And so there's a lot of not control. So if we can give them control, explain decisions and maybe give them a choice, that's really gonna help build that relationship with them. It's also gonna make them feel like they're part of the team. So that's a really important part when it comes to managing that end of life relationship and that patient. And so that can be kind of an interesting thing. So what I want to just rehash real quick is we talked about with emotional intelligence, it's a management theory, but works great for managing rooms and managing yourself. It really gets you um, into that emotional pieces 
um, self-awareness. Make sure you know where you are in the mortality process because it's really hard to have end-of-life conversations, especially if they're um, with people that are dying or you're telling them they're dying. And they just, you don't know where you are in your own process. You're going to come off as very robotic and not genuine. So make sure you know that self-awareness of where you are. Self-management, knowing those triggers so that you can control them. Knowing your values so that maybe that's not an appropriate patient assignment. Again, you can't always control that. But if you know your values, you know that, okay, I may have to take a deep breath for this one because that's not how I see things should go or how I value this. Um, Social awareness. Again, make sure that you're really paying attention to the room, the safety of the room. Take a, a feed of the room, you know, a feel of that room when you walk in there. Is the energy and anxiety really high? Then maybe we need to find ways to try and bring it down. Um, or is that energy really low? And we're like, hey, they're not doing bad today. Let's enjoy them and be with them. You know, so let's. You can you can match them and help them get to where they need to go by being aware of what's going on. And then that relationship management, and this is just a huge piece of building trust. Do not avoid the inevitable questions. If they open that door, my challenge for you is please, please walk through it. Go after that, that question. If they're, de- if they're starting to process it, be there for that question because there is no other time more vulnerable then when somebody opens the door to say, hey, I think I'm dying. And what are you gonna say to that? What's your response to that? You know, I mean, we've had patients say that to us and I know I've put my foot in my mouth a couple times. I had a patient one time, uh, the family member knew, didn't know they were gonna die. I mean, we'd watched them be on a ventilator, be on pressors, I mean, watched everything decline. And she said, did you know he was gonna die? And I said, yes. And oh, that crunch in my chest of, oh, I shouldn't have said that. But then I followed it up nicely with, but I hoped he wouldn't. And I had built that relationship with her so much so that when I went to the funeral, and I don't go to a lot of funerals of patients, but when I went to that funeral, she just saw me and wrapped her arms around me and hugged me. And here I thought I had been just totally an asshat for saying what I did to her in the hallway when she asked me just a point blank, open, vulnerable question but we had trust built and we didn't avoid the inevitable questions. So that allows for a little forgiveness as well. My challenge for you guys as you continue on through this kind of lesson is to think about where are your strengths and weakness when it comes to emotional intelligence? Where can you build a little bit better some skills? And is there a strategy that you can use, you know, whether it be a back pocket question or knowing your triggers what strategies are you going to use so that you can improve not only for yourself but also for the patient and the family so thank you for listening and we'll keep going on to um, how to have end-of-life conversations talk about a tool what kind of tools can we give our students can we give nurses can we give healthcare professionals so that they can be effective at the bedside having these conversations 
because let's just be honest, conversation is where it starts, right? We we can look at the pathophysiology, we can look at the lab results and know that like, ooh, these numbers are going the wrong way, COPD, the trajectory of this illness is death, right? We know certain diseases have death as their end. But what are we doing to start the conversations with families? And this is where we struggle is how do we have these hard intense conversations with families that don't understand necessarily the difference between acetaminophen and ibuprofen right so it it's a struggle the conversation is the start there's a really simple way to do this i like to being an icu nurse for a long long time I like to break very complex things down into very simple processes because life just doesn't need to be that complex. I call it relationship, facts, control. So we break it down into three parts, relationship, facts, control. We build a relationship, we give facts, and then we give the control back to them, the control or the choice back to them. So when we're thinking about this relationship, that also was part of that emotional intelligence, was a part of that um, relationship management, was building that trust with them. So when you walk in the room, it changes the relationship you build. If you walk in and your scrubs are all wrinkled and you smell like smoke and you um, are looking at your piece of paper instead of looking at the patient or fumbling and shaking because you're nervous, all of that builds that relationship. Body language gives us, what, 93% of our communication. So really only 7% of what we say is the words that we speak. Our body language, our mannerisms build that relationship long before the first word comes out of our mouth. The other things that we need to pay attention to when we're building that relationship is our tone of voice. If we use a high pitch, anxious, like, oh my gosh, something's going on, I gotta go, da, 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 that's gonna build an anxious relationship. So if you're coding someone and you're coming into the room, you need to stop, take a breath, and then go into the room. If you come into the room all disheveled and hustled and bustled because you've just been watching them do CPR and now you're coming into the room, you have brought anxious energy back into that room of already intense and anxious people. So make sure that you're paying attention to the tone of voice that you have, the energy that you bring into the room, and your word choice. You don't want to speak high above their head. I mean, like the doctor that used the word dysphagia, you could just tell by looking at the patient's family, they had no idea what dysphagia was. They had no concept of what that, that complex word was. Difficulty swallowing. He can't swallow. Much simpler. Now, if you've got somebody who is at that level, you can say, hey, he's got dysphagia. And, and they'll understand it. But you have to be able to assess, do they understand that language or not? So as we're building this relationship, we're entering the room and paying attention to how we enter. This is where, I mean, you just do not get a second chance to make a first impression. And fair or not, if you walk in confident, I don't care if you're the most beautiful person in the world. If you walk in wrinkly and slouched and unprofessional, 
they're not going to trust you. If you are like me, the average Joe or the next door neighbor, you know, not freaking Marilyn Monroe or, you know, Brad Pitt, good looking, but just normal looking people, you can still build a relationship of trust with somebody by walking in with your body language held high, um, confident. I don't care if you have to fake it till you make it kind of confidence, um, but they don't need to see that you're shaking in your sneakers. They just need to see that you care about them and that you have the right energy coming in the room. Again, if you're bringing in anxious energy, you've just heightened that anxiety. Energy is contagious. The next piece of this is facts. I'm a big one with give facts. I know doctors get mad when we try and diagnose or we, you know, it's out of, that's out of our scope or that we've told them something that goes against maybe what the doctor said. If we stick to the facts, if we stick to the pathophysiology of the disease process, the side effects of medication, the complications of medications, any of that kind of stuff, you can't, they can get mad at us, but they have no right to get mad at us because we've just been educating our patients and that is what we do. We advocate and educate our patients and we're educating them on what they understand about their disease process. So if you get a doctor that's mad at you for that, I mean, okay, but they can be mad. It, that doesn't mean that changes the facts of the disease process. So make sure that you're sticking to the facts, you're sticking to the pathophysiology. When you're doing this, this is a really good time to pull out that back pocket question of what do you know about COPD? Because depending on what they know, depends on the facts that you may need to educate them about. Um, what do you know about albuterol and um, Advair and any of those other medications that we give for COPD patients or steroids? You know, they might be able to rattle off everything you need to know. Maybe you need to help them build that connection between, you know, they may know all the meds, but they may not know how they connect. So I call it paint a picture. Paint a picture of what is going on inside their body. They need to be visual. 70% of people are visual people and they need to be able to have that picture of what's going on inside their body, with their medications, with their disease process. So make sure if you're a Bob Ross fan, I think of it as Bob Ross, paint, paint the picture, happy trees. Maybe they're sad trees, but whatever. Just paint that picture so that they see mentally what is really going on. And maybe they need you to write it out. Maybe they need you to repeat it again. That's okay. They may need time to process. That's a lot of information coming at them in a very stressful event or situation. And maybe they need time to process it. Remember, those quiet moments in the middle of the night is when all that stuff sort of seeps in. So I also look at like facts as planting seeds. You're giving them information so they can process it just be patient with them because some people take longer to process it than others. The last piece of this, so we've talked about relationship, we've talked about facts. The last piece of this is control. It is not your choice, it is theirs. It is not yours to be in control of, it is theirs. This is where we need to give them something to have control of. If you look at yourself right now, I am sure you have chosen by yourself what you're wearing. I mean, if you're naked, you chose to be naked, but you have chosen what you're wearing right now. You've chosen you to listen to this podcast, right? These are choices that we make. Uh, so you have the choice and 
taking away those choices is not going to help the patient. We need to make sure that we're giving the control back to them or their family, whoever is making those choices, making those decisions. Some families, if they're really struggling, are their choices, they may be, may be really simple ones. They may be like, hey, do they like to listen to country music or oldies? Do they like to um, have their, have chicken or turkey? You know, I mean, sometimes the choices can be really simple and really small just to give them a feeling like they have some control over the situation. I really like to give families the option when I am dealing with um, like terminal patients that are, you know, like we've done a compassion extubation or something like that. Uh, I really like to give them a choice of like doing mouth swabs. Give them control over something that they can actively do. Like they will have the cleanest mouth possible, but you gave control to them to be in charge of cleaning that mouth. You don't need to be in charge of cleaning that mouth. You've got enough other stuff to do. Or maybe they are spiking a fever, which happens as, you know, stuff kind of starts to shut down. Give them control over doing washcloths. They will have the cleanest, newest, wettest washcloths on their forehead. Um, so that's really important to give them some sort of control, some sort of choice. You know, there's different cultures out there, and so this one might vary. You just have to be uh, sensitive and aware that um, it may be the patriarch that's making these choices, and the patient doesn't know what's going on. I've found some Asian cultures that that's happened in, and it, it can be a huge challenge. So make sure that you're working with that culture. Things that we know we need to stay away from. When we're working with patients and we're, we're working with them, having these tough conversations, things that we need to stay away from is the word everything. Oh my gosh, it should not be even in our vocabulary. If I asked you right now, do you want everything on your pizza? What are you gonna say to me? What are you gonna ask me? Because I know that I do not want everything on my pizza. I don't know what everything is. And that is often what happens when, if your heart stops, do you want everything done? Well, of course, yeah, I want everything done, yeah, yeah. Because here's the other part about everything. First of all, the opposite of everything is nothing. And they don't want nothing done. They don't want to suffer. They don't know what everything is and they don't know what nothing is. So we have to be more explicit when we say, if your heart should stop, do you want us to start chest compressions? And if they give you a blank look, then maybe we talk about what are chest compressions, where we're gonna put pressure on your chest about 100 times a minute to be acting as your heart to pump blood through your body. Most people are gonna go, oh God, no. No, I don't want that, you know, or do you want us to intubate you? And they're going to look at you with a blank look because no one really knows what intubate is um, other than my kids because, you know, I talk too much. But they're going to want you to tell you what that is. We're going to put a tube down your throat, into your lungs, and we're going to put you on a machine to breathe for you. Oh, I don't want that. Or do you want us to shock you? You know, this is, this is where we get into those really simple facts, but breaking down what everything really means. We have to understand that what people perceive as CPR is what they see on TV. Well, on TV, it's glorious, man. I, they look better after CPR than I do most days. So, you know, their makeup's perfect, their light's perfect, everything's perfect and beautiful. The save rate on TV, I was told one time by a, um, a pulmonologist doctor who does a lot of research in, the, in end of life, and she told me, she's like, the research shows that the save rate on TV is 85%. On 85% of CPR 
is a save on TV. So really meaning what, 15% die? Um, you know, and those are just the dramatic theatrical ones. So, but in reality, we're at about 8%. 8% people survive if we have to do CPR on them. And most of the time, the ones that are gonna survive are gonna be the guy at the gym who had a massive heart attack or the runner who was running and stopped and had a massive heart attack um, while running and had people right on board. Elderly people, are, their chances go down incredibly because there's so many comorbidities. We know this in the medical field. We don't advertise it. Who wants to say, yay, here, bet on us, we're gonna do an 8% save rate? No one. But yet no one wants to have the conversations of, hey, maybe we shouldn't be doing this to people who are elderly because we know their chances of surviving are not well. The other thing that's just a little caveat in here is that a survive is not always what people think it is. Survive is not walking and talking. Survive is breathing on a ventilator and a heartbeat and leaving the hospital. So that is why like, I tell my kids, I do not want a trach, I do not want a pig, I do not want to be on a long-term care ventilator. If I get pneumonia and you need to put me on a, intubate me and put me on a ventilator for seven days while antibiotics work, okay but I do not want long-term ventilation. It's just not for me, it's not what I wish for. So that's, that's something, sorry that was a little digress, but that's something to pay attention to is everything. The term everything really should never be used. It's like there is no absolutes in healthcare, right? Everything is, it's like we're always in that middle ground, okay? The other thing we gotta stay for, away from is nothing more we can do. That is the biggest bunch of bullshit out there. There is always more we can do. We can change focus. When, when you tell people there's nothing more we can do, they think that you're giving up on them. They think that, okay, you're gonna just walk away and I'm gonna go sit on the curb. No, we're gonna change focus. We're gonna focus on quality. We're gonna focus on comfort. We're gonna give you medications to keep you comfortable. We're not gonna do nothing. We're still gonna care for you because that's what we do in healthcare is we care for people who are sick. We care for people who are dying. We care for people who need help. So the two things that we need to stay away from are everything and nothing. Nothing more we can do. That's just a bunch of hooey and no one wants everything on their pizza, so very few of us are gonna want everything done for um, when if our heart stops. So where do we start? If we're having an end of life conversation, we've talked about going into the room with appropriate energy and tone, going and using the appropriate language. Um, we've talked about, you know, give them facts, keep them simple but realistic, go back to that pathophysiology of disease process, medications, that kind of stuff give them control. But how do you really start with an end of life conversation with someone? Will you start? Again, use that back pocket question. It's such a great one. What do you know about? What do you know about COPD? What do you know about strokes? What do you know about dysphagia? That's, that's a good spot to start because it'll buy you time and see where they are on that. I gave, um, I was talking to a friend who of course found me on Facebook because you know that's how people find you these days. And she, I'd posted my research, all excited about it, and she was just like, oh yeah, can you meet with me? And I was like, okay, I haven't seen her since high school, we'll see what this is gonna be about. And she's a manager of a cardiac cath lab. And in that cardiac cath lab, they often deal with people who are in emergent situations needing to get that, those vessels open, 
you know, actively having heart attacks. So she told me that they were in trouble by a lot of patients because the doctors were not doing well having end-of-life conversations with families. And one doctor had even gone as far as going into a room, into the waiting room with the nurse and said, hey, they didn't make it, and then walked out of the room. And so the nurse is left there holding the bag. And that is all the doctor said. And you can imagine the family feeling very disrespected, totally in shock, exhausted from emotion. They're in that emotional fog. They're not in that thinking space. And so there was a lot of trauma that that doctor just caused by doing that. Now was that doctor not educated on how to have those end of life conversations? Maybe was that doctor exhausted and maybe um, had not maintained um, his you know, self and energy? Yeah, maybe. I mean, there's just a lot of factors that go in there. But again, going back to that emotional intelligence, understanding how to take care of ourselves, understanding how to take care of our triggers, really important. Where do you start? So we talked about what do you know about? Let's change focus. One of the biggest ones that I really like to do is change focus. When people are like, oh, hospice is death. It's a death sentence. I don't want that. No, 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 no. Hospice is changing focus. It's changing focus from aggressive care, aggressive treatment that's not going to work, and changing focus to quality. Quality is so important and it's so valuable. In the, med in the medical world, we measure stuff by quantity, right? Number of days, number of days post-op, number of days um, survived after number of years after cancer treatment, right? We, we, we suck because we measure quantity. But what's that quality really like? My grandma, we put a pacer in her, right? Because we didn't know. We went, we took her to the ER and she was, had a, they put her on the monitors and she had a heart rate of 20. Well, holy cow, we had no idea what was going on. And by the time I said, she's a DNR, she's a DNR, she's a DNR, they had already slapped the external pacer on her. Okay, and so at that point in time, they're cranking it up and they got her up to 60 beats a minute. My grandma was awake with a heartbeat of 20. She was awake, coherent and answering questions. I mean, they were slow and she was sleepy, but she was still awake and answering questions. Not once did anyone ask her what her wishes were. She could have simply passed away and died very comfortably, but instead she's being shocked through her chest one time a second to get her heartbeat up to 60. The doctor comes in and she asks him, you know, do I have to have a pacer? Cause he's telling her she's gotta have a pacer. And she goes, well, do I have to have a pacer? And he says, well, if you don't, you'll die. And then he walked out of the room. And so my grandma in her beautiful, wonderful little um, head got it in that if she didn't get a pacer that she was committing suicide because in her Christian mind, that was suicide and then she would go to hell and she would never see grandpa again and grandpa had passed away you know 20 years prior to that so she ended up getting a pacer well she got a pacer um they tried to put it in of course her vasculature was damaged and old and not working so they couldn't get it in on the first try so now they had to put a temporary pacer up through her groin into her heart and put her in the icu overnight so they, they could retry in the morning then I get in there in the morning and the code cart's broken open. And I'm like, why is the code cart broken open? Well, the 
temporary pacer wire had slipped off and they had to code her to bring her back. So now you've got an 85 year old woman who has now gone through a bunch of procedures and had been coded and re, you know, shocked and was getting shocked again externally until they could put it in. They ended up putting in a pacer in and getting it in. You know, when we talk about quantity, well, yeah, she had five more years. She had five more years with macular degeneration, so she was a librarian that couldn't read anymore. Uh, she had, uh, she couldn't knit, slowly declined in her knitting skills. I mean, we ended up having to move her from the facility that she had always known to a different facility um, that she didn't know anyone and no one, she, you know, again, she just didn't feel like she was making friends because she couldn't see anyone. She got confused um, and she ended up dying of a brain tumor five years later. Now, great, she had five years. Quantity of days was measured, right? So whatever checkbox the doctors need to do for post-op um, pacers, they got it. But was it really the quality that she wanted? So that's something to think about when we're doing all these um, procedures. The quantity of days may not give them the quality that they really want. The other thing that we can do when we're um, dealing with families and end-of-life situations is bring the family in the room. And this means when you're actively coding a patient, bring the family in the room. The important piece about this is to have someone with them that can explain what's going on. Because could you imagine not understanding what you're seeing and have somebody punching someone in the chest and shocking them, or even worse yet, people are doing all this stuff and then everybody steps away from the bed? Like the family doesn't know how to interpret that other than what they've seen on Grey's Anatomy or MASH or whatever medical show they've watched, right? So we have to have families in the room, but it's really important to have uh, someone with them. It, from what we've seen um, anecdotally is if you have family in the room, they understand that we've done everything, right? Um, they've seen what everything is and they usually tell us to stop. So it actually short, short, shortens sorry, our code time, which is, more be is beneficial for the patient and the family to not see that trauma and have that extensive trauma. So where do you start to have this conversation with someone who's not dying? Like my wish list would be everybody has this conversation at a much earlier age uh, when we are not sick, when we are healthy and we can make our own choices and we can be our own advocates. One of the best questions you can ask people is, what's on your bucket list? You know, I mean, that's a fun way of starting to get at, you have a, you have a short amount of time here on this earth. And so what's on your bucket list? What kinds of things do you want to do before your time is up? And that can kind of then spiral. Okay, that'll give you an idea. Well, if they say, well, I want to rock climb and I want to do mountain bike or blah, blah, blah. Okay, what of those things is quality? Oh, being outside, I love being outside. Okay, well then, what if you can't be outside? You know, like that starts getting you into the idea of what qualities things do they want? And then we can start asking like, if you had to have a tube down your throat, would you want that? And maybe they're like, if they're like my sister, they're like, yep, tube, everything. I want it all. If they're like me, I'm like, meh, tube for a few days, maybe. No trach. I don't want to be on a trach. If I can make the choice to be have a trach, you know, for cancer surgery or whatever, fine. 
but I don't want my kids to have to make that choice for me. I'm just telling them now, okay? Uh, so that bucket list is a fun way to start having people think about what's really their priorities, what's important for them as they're going through this. I wanna just end this with have the courage to have these conversations. Don't be silent because our silence in the medical field is causing so much trauma, pain and hurt from just the lack of information, the confusion, and then not focusing on what really is important about their lives, about the quality, and giving them respect and dignity to make the choices because we never asked them the questions. So have the courage to ask the questions. Have the courage to walk through those doors as people open them for you because I promise they will. And the most amazing thing about end of life care is that you get to be there for some of the most vulnerable moments in their life. There is no other moment, maybe other than birth, that is as vulnerable as death. And death while sad, like it, 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 it's sad and should be sad. I don't wanna take away the sadness of death, okay? But I wanna take away the trauma. Cause death can be beautiful. Even though it's sad, even though you're going to miss them, even though the grief is there. Grief is because we love. Grief is because we had connection. So have these questions with people. Have these conversations. Make sure we're, we know what their wishes are, what their wants are. Because I promise you, when you get to those moments that you have to have these conversations or you no longer have the option to have conversations because they're intubated or they're so far removed because of a disease process, the regret is really the only thing left. And so that conversation, that missed opportunity, there's a lot of pain there. And if we can get rid of that pain just simply with a conversation, that's a good day. That's a good life. That's a good way to end. So we've talked about barriers. We've talked about emotional intelligence and the importance of understanding yourself and managing the room. Another thing I want to talk about is the end of life experience. And when I talked in the very beginning about how an end-of-life experience can impact or stay with a nurse for years, long after the experience has been done, you don't even remember the patient's name necessarily anymore, but that, that memory of that cold, hard floor and what it felt like to sit on it and how you, your heart stopped as the doctor comes out and says just horrible words to a family and then walks away and leaves. That's a negative experience. And while there's not, there's a lot we can't control in a first end of life experience, there are some things we can control. So when I looked through people's first end of life experiences, I went through and I was looking at what, what makes it positive or negative? Could I get a feeling? Could I get a vibe? Could I get a theme from their 
their description of an end-of-life experience. And since these were all done with surveys, it was done anonymously. Um, so there was a lot of really short ones and a lot of very just pragmatic and practical ones. But there were some that people really went into depth on. The things that make a first end-of-life experience positive is that the patient's managed well. That hospice is there, that they are um, doing good things for the patient, they're taking care of the pain, they're taking care of the anxiety, they're taking care of the family, all of that being that the patient is is managed well. Um, other things that make it positive is the supportive family. The family being there is an interesting twist that seems to be going with um, end of life is how important it is for family to be present during those moments and during that time good staff support. So this would be new grads having people there supporting them, working with them, um, helping them process and understand things, helping them fill out paperwork, helping them figure out all the different nuances of end of life experience. Uh, expected or did everything was another theme that kind of consistently came up that, you know, they felt that they their job had been valued or that they had done everything or that you know they they had lived a good life it was an expected death so it was a matter of you know no surprise right because surprises while sometimes are good and death they are often very very bad um and then this other thing that kind of theme that came out that I couldn't really ever really truly wrap my words around uh, or understanding around but I call it the beauty of a good death like it was just peaceful. There was nice positive energy. There was a lift. There was something that all came together, like all the pieces of a puzzle just fit together and worked. And so that's that beauty of a good death. And it's not necessarily something to measure or describe, but you could kind of get this from reading people's end of life experiences. The negative experiences, what made it negative? And a lot of these are the opposite of what made it positive, right? So um, a positive piece being that the patient was managed well. So then the negative piece being the patient was unmanaged. They couldn't get a hold of hospice. They couldn't get their pain under control. The anxiety was high. The family not prepared. So this is where families aren't ready for it, whether it be a hospice patient or not, whether it be someone in the ER that they just weren't prepared to handle these kinds of this kind of situation, whether maybe the family just didn't quite understand what was going on. Little staff support. So they didn't have a good mentor. They didn't have someone there that was helping them through the paperwork, helping them through the decisions, helping them through, you know, getting the right amounts of morphines. Uh, you know, that that really impacted a lot of people is is the staff support, feeling like they had adequate people to go to and ask questions and feel like they were given the good support they needed to deal with the end of life experience. Unexpected or failed to save. So this is where that surprises are bad. Surprises are good in a party, bad for death. So um, it was unexpected or they failed to save them. So this is people that would write about CPR and that it was messy and horrible and dramatic and horrific and they never want it done or any of that kind of stuff. So that unexpected moment, not being able to have time to say goodbye, not being able to have time to prepare is, is, can be challenging. Here are the two things that teachers can help with. Unprepared skills, 
So struggling with skill set, um, what kind of skills do they need? Well, the skills often are CNA skills or certified nursing assistant skills. They are the skills that are postmortem cares, right? Um, but there's other skill sets. There's calling the time of death. There is listening to the heart that's stopped. There is um, all the other pieces that go with it, filling out the paperwork, calling the correct, calling the sheriff, calling the correct places, getting the charge nurse there, all of those skills that go with it. The other piece that we're really kind of failing on is the unprepared emotionally. Unprepared emotionally is such a piece and it's so hard to measure, guys. I know you can't measure it on a test. You can't measure it necessarily in an essay question. It's something that you just have to sort of wait for to in order to see if if we met it, if we did it. Um, but really important for us to tap into that emotional piece. Like I talked about the skills, it's not necessarily touching the body that they need to understand and deal with. It's the feelings that touching a dead body brings with it. And so understanding the pieces that come with it, especially when you've got you know a 20 year old new nurse who has never seen death in their life other than maybe they put a dog to sleep or something. So that, that's a big piece of, and challenge for our students and for our new nurses. Uh, that death is just, again, they're very, what I call naked at the bedside. They just haven't had a lot of those experiences. So they're increased in invulnerability. And it's nice if we as faculty or as uh, floor mentors or however you want to look at it, help them prepare for some of those emotional um, events and situations. The other thing that goes with education. So when I looked at my research, you know, like I said, I can rattle off a ton of numbers, but when I looked at my research, what, how this actually worked was I do an end of life workshop for my students and then I followed them out into their careers and I surveyed them at about three-ish, up to three years. So my students were all brand new grads and I had them fill out the survey and I looked at it and then I did a general population as well and did some comparing and contrasting and seeing how those new grads were impacted by end of life and seeing the pieces that were missing in education. So, but what was really neat to see was that the students that received education, they were the ones that scored higher on the, on the survey. They were the ones that reported more positive first end of life experiences. So we can make a difference. We can make a difference with education if we're willing to take the time to teach them not only the skills pieces, but the emotional pieces and the management pieces that go with end of life as well. So there's hope for us to minimize the trauma that nurses are having with death by simply taking time and energy to figure out how can we weave this into our program, how can we take them off the floor for a clinical day to do a workshop, which is what I do, um, because I feel like it's incredibly valuable for an end-of-life workshop to get to them. But it's really important that when you do that workshop that you're digging into the, the messy emotion stuff. It's not just about hospice and palliative care. It's not just about what documents to fill out. It's actually getting them to cry, to feel, 
to be present in the moment so that they can learn how to deal with those emotions and that they can support one another as they go through those processes.